Okay, hello and welcome to the Cine Skinny. It's the podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. It's me, Peter Simpson, with Jamie Dunn. Hello. Anahit Berries. Hi. And Lewis Robertson. Hello. The gang's all here. Back, first time in 2023, back at Upload Studios in Leith. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Tar, the new Kate Blanchett film. We're going to be talking about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, the Nan Golden documentary. We're also going to be talking about artificial intelligence in films because the M3 gun film has come out with the kind of haunted AI doll. But first, we'll ask everyone what they've been watching recently. Uh, Jamie, you're sitting next to me. Do you want to go first? Well, Science Sound <laughs> recently did their famous uh, Once a Decade poll where they ask loads of critics and filmmakers to vote on the greatest film of all time. And GFT are currently doing a season with some of the highlights from that list. Uh, and one of those films in, uh, which is included is John Dealman, which came out top of the list, uh, pushing previous winners like Vertigo and Citizen Kane into second and third place. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was just fun to revisit it. I voted for John Dealman actually, um, but it's one of the films on my list that I had only seen once. So I kind of wanted to go back just to confirm it was as great as I remembered and listeners... Spoiler alert, it was <laughs> as great as I remembered. Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a, a really kind of simple film, basically, but just everything's going on under the surface. So it's like about a single mother who we just follow over, over a couple of days um, and initially she seems to be like total master of her domain. She does her kind of household chores with precision. She squeezes in a bit of sex work in the middle of the day to pay for the bills. She does her errands. Um, she takes care of her miserable kids. But uh, he's so awful. He's awful. But she just slowly starts to break. Uh, the kind of routine gets to her, you know. Um, and just what I, I respect about it, just seeing how in control of her film uh, Chantal Ackerman was. You know, she was only twenty five when she made this, and you know, every element of the film is just perfectly calibrated to make you feel something you know so just the slight change of a camera angle or the slight change of the character's appearance you know it's like a hammer blow like it's like an actual dramatic thing that you wouldn't see uh you know would be like a kind of explosion in another war film so yeah um and it was also just great to see it with a huge crowd because like gft was packed you know when i saw it 10 years ago there was like five people in the audience and there was like must have been 200 in the audience when i saw it um a couple of weeks ago and I guess that's just the power of lists and changing canons. It gives films like this, you know, the recognition it deserves and more people get to see it. So, yeah, it was just a really fun, exciting bit of uh, screening. For I, I, I have to admit, like, I don't really know a lot about this film. And I think there's a large amount of the general public that also don't know a lot about this film. And I don't think it, you know, I think that it's it's gained so much momentum in the decades past and now it's gotten this like really really esteemed recognition is there anything that's like actually changed that might have like brought upon this sort of change in attitude can you think or is it just sort of well i think definitely just sight and sound have asked a bigger audience of people and a more diverse mm. like list Which of critics pissed off paul schrader like yeah. to no end <laughs> yeah um but there's also an element of people like trying to disrupt the list like i like i love john dealman um, so, but I could have put on, like any like you know when you pick ten films, it's kind of daft to say you've got ten favorites. Mm. You don't really. So you choose films that you want to be in the list if you want to make a difference. You know you could just choose ten random things, but it won't make a hell of a difference. So you want to choose films that could change the list in some way. And um, I, this is what I did. Like John Dillman was like about fiftieth, forty for fiftieth last time, but it was the t the first, the only film. I think no, sorry, it wasn't the only film. It was the the, the highest film by a woman. Unless I thought I'm going to vote that because that has a chance to get into the top ten, and I think maybe a lot of people had that same feeling. And what actually happened was it became it was didn't just break the top ten; it, it moved up forty places, and is number one. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not a good film. It's just like these lists are inherently stupid, you know. But mm -hmm. but they are useful because it does mean that people will now go out and see that film, you know, and yeah. it makes people rethink what is a great film. You know, does it have to be? A, a film that's a classic classic Hollywood film. This is a film that's an experimental film. It's like doing something completely different with a camera, um, and yeah, and it's it's uh, and it's about a woman's story as well. Like it's kind of about the thing that you don't really get to see films about. It's about woman's work, which is something that you never see on screen. So yeah, uh, I guess that's probably why it yeah. shot up the list. How many of your top ten made it onto the list? Uh, a couple, uh, like um, maybe two or three, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, like Tokyo Story mm. was like I knew it would be. It was like number three last year. I think it moved down one place, so like I, I voted for it. Um, I, I, I voted for that because I thought that would be top. Actually, I wanted like a non, 
like Western film to mm. be top because it's just been sort of American cinema that's been the top for the last 50 years. So I thought it'd be nice to have something different. But like that's, I mean, those are the only two I put in for kind of like political reasons, you mm. know, if you want to call it that, like to like to shake up the list. The rest were just like films I really liked. I don't know how, because you did one as well. How, mm-hmm. did, how did you choose it? Um, yeah, I think films that I really loved that I thought had made a difference to the way that cinema kind of like functioned. So things like either something like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which felt like a kind of real landmark moment in how people even went to the cinema, you know, that idea of like having to see a film from start to finish. Um, something like Moonlight, Doors to the Dust that were like really big and like black kind of filmmaking. So, but then there was also things that I really, really loved. Like The Virgin Suicides was on my top 10. I knew it would never make the list, but that is genuinely, I think one of, for me, one of the films that like, was very groundbreaking how we think about like female interiority. So it was kind of like a mix, but like you say, it wasn't just your 10 favorite films, but I guess to me, greatest films meant what was like making a change, what like felt like a tipping point in the history of cinema. So kind of like that. But I also hadn't seen Jean Dielman because I was also at that screening. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever seen it. And it was great, like you say. I was not at that screening, but I saw five Instagram stories in a row on the day it was on of people either saying, I'm seeing John Dealman or I can't believe I'm not getting to see John Dealman. <laughs> um, if you want to see John Dealman, it's on the BFI player just now. So again, things like being the top of the BFI in-house magazine's greatest films of all time helps with things like getting your film restored or mm-hmm. getting it on the BFI player. So yeah, if you want to watch it, you can get it on the BFI player, which you can get through like Amazon Prime or just through the BFI website. So if you want to see the greatest film of all time, TMTM, check it <laughs> out. Uh, Lewis, what have you been watching? Uh, so I sort of watched... Like, watched and rewatched a lot of stuff in that kind of, like, post-Christmas interim period. But the only thing that, like, really, really stood out to me that I just didn't know about before was Summer of Soul. It's a 2021 documentary. It's directed by Questlove. Uh, it's now streaming on Disney+. Plus. It's pretty much in 1969, same year as Woodstock, there was a, another huge music festival. There was the Harlem Cultural Festival that showcased artists like Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Mavis Staples... Uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Fifth Dimension, all all really, really good. Uh, pro- professionally recorded, but never broadcast or shared. So now that footage has been taken by Questlove and kind of released, a, kind of a really good documentary that's made to suit some really interesting stories. They get testimonies from festival goers as well as the performers and organisers who are now looking back on the event that they took part in. So, you know, definitely something to learn there. But also, I think it was like... New Year's Day that we put it on, so we're feeling a little bit rough after Hogmanay. Uh, so it was like around noon, and we just found this on Disney Plus and put it on, and all this like great music is now like filling our flat, and it's just like really, really good vibes. It's just really, really recommend. Uh, Summer of Soul, we've recommended before because I think we talked about Summer of Soul on the very first episode mm-hmm. of the Cine Skin Air. It was our top 10. It, it was the top 10 from 2021 that we did as the very first episode, and I think Jamie talked a lot about how good it is. So the lineage continues. Yeah, at, the start of e- at the start of every year, we have to talk about Summer of Soul <laughs> and how it's this great documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival. <laughs> it's back, baby. Uh, so yeah, you can watch that on Disney Plus. Quest Love, great guy. Um, Annie, what have you been watching? So I watched a lot of like very fun old movies during Christmas. Um, I had COVID <laughs> during Christmas, which was deeply hilarious. So I watched like five films a day. Um, quick rundown, uh, 1943, No Time for Love, which has Claudette um, Colbert as like this scrappy little journalist and Fred McMurray is this like kind of construction worker type thing who's like really brawny and she like is really attracted to him and the class politics is fucking awful, but it's like really horny. I watched a lot of like inadvertently very horny cinema. No. Um, <laughs> no, really. Massively <laughs> out of character. <laughs> um, I watched The Pirate, which is a musical with Judy Garland and Gene Kelly that went viral for that like one scene where Gene Kelly like is smoking a cigarette and then he like flips in his mouth kisses the girl and then like flips it back out which was great vibes genuinely one of the horniest films that like is in representations of being horny there's this point where they're like trying to sell Judy Garland off to this pirate to like have peace in the town and she's behind the closed door being like oh no you couldn't possibly and she's like spritzing herself with perfume because she can't <laughs> wait to go oh my god that was great 
um, watched Stage Beauty, which is like a hornier and gayer version of Shakespeare in Love. And I think better. I never really got the big deal with Shakespeare in Love. Uh, but Stage Beauty is great. Gold Diggers of 1933, which is like this depression era musical, which again has that trope, um, which is very sexy, of this guy like comes, there's like his little brother, he's this rich man, his little brother is in love with this like stage girl and he comes to tell the stage girl off and accidentally tells her friend off and then she gets so angry that she like pretends to be and then they fall in love. It was just like great. I had a great time. Yeah, I was gonna say those 40s films, like those screwballs and stuff are, yeah, everybody's having sex, but it's all like, but it's all done in a really fun way because it's all like, going up to somebody's door and being really like yeah. angry but it was just like obviously horny and sexually yeah, frustrated yeah, yeah. and it's like yeah. but you have the haze code so you couldn't actually show anything so everyone's just having to like perform it in this yeah. really like oh it's so clever i had a great fucking time i would recommend all of those in terms of where other people could watch those films um, where might one do that i truly could not tell you okay well you've got the names of them <laughs> do as you will a lot of them are hard to find like yeah. it is a shame i mean some of them are out of prints they're mm-hmm. just on youtube so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. try youtube I yeah say. yeah and there's actually i can't check just now but there are like a there's like a regularly updated batch of things from that kind of time on the bbc iPlayer. yes that's true that's so true. go and check those out even if you can't find those particular horny old 40s films you'll <laughs> find something for you <laughs> first film that we're going to talk about in a kind of review sense is all the beauty in the bloodshed which is a Documentary by Laura Poitras? Poitras or Portis? Poitras. Poitras. Documentary by Laura Poitras, which kind of charts the life and career of the photographer Nan Golden. It's like a hugely influential photographer who documented a lot of like kind of no wave stuff in the kind of underground art and music scene in New York in the early 80s. And it's been kind of a mainstay of photography in a kind of art sense since like the 70s and 80s. This film kind of retells Nan Golden's life story and uh, she has a lot of like interview in it about her life and her work. But the film also tracks her kind of campaign against the Sackler family who were the owners of Purdue, which was a big pharmaceutical company responsible for the OxyContin epidemic and the deaths of literally hundreds of thousands of people. And Nan Golden and her pressure group Payne launched this big campaign to basically get the Sackler name taken off all the galleries that they had supported with the blood money they'd got from killing a bunch of people. And uh, so the film kind of simultaneously charts Nan Golden's life from her kind of like childhood onwards and charts her campaign against the Sacklers and Purdue. Uh, Anahe, I think that you can probably go first because you have something of a, a, an anecdote about the Sacklers <laughs> sponsoring literally everything. That's probably a good place to start. Yeah. So I spent a lot of my undergrad in the Sackler library because that is what the classics library is called where I went to university and my two best friends did classics. We would call it the Slacker Library because we hated being there. (laughs) Also because you were (laughs) cool guys. (laughs) Hey now. (laughs) That's, yeah, fair. Um, But like literally it was like this beautiful library, uh, deeply miserable. Everyone there was like a huge fucking dork. Um, And we would just spend so much time there. And ever since then, I would notice that kind of every gallery I went to or a lot of these big institutions had kind of like a Sackler wing. And so it was kind of something that was always in the back of my mind as like a name. But there was never once any conversation about any of it. And I think that's kind of very much the purpose of the work that they did in donating to these spaces, right? Like it creates this distance of the name from any kind of real life impact. And it kind of turns it into something ancient. Like to me, the Sacklers were an ancient family that had nothing to do with the now. Um, And I think that is kind of, that idea of institutionalization is one of the most interesting threads in what is, I think, one of the films of the year. And I know it's so early to say that, but this is a fucking extraordinary film. There's this kind of tension that Laura Poitras draws between art that is underground, that idea of art that fills the silences of lives that aren't otherwise shown, art that like is kind of, you know, resistance. And then art is something that is deeply bound up with power and deeply bound up with institutions. And what she does in weaving together these different strands and kind of setting Golden's work in the 70s and the 80s, the kind of ballad of sexual dependency, 
the way she captured the kind of underground queer movement, the way that she photographed her own experience of domestic violence, all of this stuff moving into the AIDS crisis against her work in PAIN, which I've now forgotten what it stands for, which is awful, but that's the name of the kind of um, group that she said. Something, yeah, yeah, it is. I'm, God, I'm actually gonna look that up because that's really bad. Um, this is not a reflection of anything apart from the fact that I don't have a functional uh, memory. prescription addiction intervention. No, thank you. Yeah, so the work that she has kind of done with them and the way that she kind of weaves those things together, um, is just remarkable. Like, it's it kind of shows it to be something that is all about the same fight like this idea of whose lives and whose bodies are considered valuable and whose are considered disposable. I think it's really hard in a way to kind of put the breadth and depth of this film in words because it is just such a huge project of entangling the intimate and the political, the way that she goes back, all of this like archive footage, the way that the suicide of Nan Golden's sister when she's a child kind of bookends this enormous story about like a nationwide opioid crisis um, yeah, it's just like this gorgeous film about like the history of the queer community, but I think also a film that could be studied like in centuries to come as like an artifact about the state of America, you know, like that idea, like it brings in the idea of queerness, of the healthcare system, of the way that corporations will literally like kill people, like will willingly happily kill people in order to have power, in order to have money. There's this one quote, um, which I remember exactly what it was. I wrote it down. Yeah, that they kind of say that they want to cover America with like a blizzard of prescriptions. Like this stuff was done deliberately, it was done on purpose. And it is just such a powerful force of a film. I think it's only the second film maybe to have ever won the Golden Lion at Venice. Um, that's a documentary, which like just goes to, sh it's just remarkable. It is just so, so incredible. Like what it does. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how you could like sit in front of like this archival footage of an entire life, especially someone like Nan Golden's and bring together such a like coherent and like powerful argument. Um, but it is fucking remarkable. It's it's kind of like a, um, like a buildings roman in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's very much in two halves where, you know, it, this dual narrative, it establishes the weight of Golden's work, like her influence on the art world. And then, this current project in which she's, you know, seeking justice in this, in like, insurmountable odds. And it really encourages you to just, like, look and question what's the link here? What, like, ties these two things together? Um, you know, it, it, it very much splits her into photographer, photography and activism. Um, and what turns out to, like, I, I think that's why instead of just being a documentary that could be about the opioid crisis in America, which there are plenty of, and very good ones as well, uh, instead of just, like, investigating or explaining or questioning the opioid crisis, it just turns out to be this, like, landmark chronicle of the key moments in this this long, long battle. Um, hearing, like, an assortment of testimonies against the Sackler family that they're legally required to listen to as part of their... Uh, bid for legal immunity against what they've done mm. it's it's similarly like so of two minds where it's satisfying in a way because we never really get to look people who make the world a worse place in the eye and say what they've done to us but at the same time just really terrible and like uh uh like 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 an equally massive weight on on people to have to share that um so there's a really interesting thing going on there with these like broad, broad binaries in this film and watching it just makes your brain work hard to try and link them together. And I love that process. I love that. That's what it brings out in people. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's an amazing film. I mean, part of why it works as well is like, what an archive of work to look at. You know, Nan Golden's photography is it's just something else I, I embarrassingly I didn't really know much about Nan Golden but, uh, but then I realised I've seen so much of her work you know that that kind of period of um, New York is really interesting to me the, the no wave movement and stuff and yeah I've seen her stuff documented uh, documenting it loads but it's, it's so powerful to see how she presents it she presents her work in these kind of slideshows she's like built up this amazing catalogue of photographs and she's every time she um, displays it it's different she, she kind of changes the edit um, but yeah the, the, just the photography is just it's 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 of our 
friends, her lovers, her flatmates, her collaborators, you know, the people who she worked with in the bar. And it's just something else. It's kind of ugly, beautiful. It's just like so direct, so honest. Um, it's about kind of love, sex, death, everything in between. And, you know, she was just surrounded by these cool, interesting, fascinating people. And, you know, she just, she, she says she, she was a shy child and she connects with people through the camera. She says that taking photographs was like, like sublimation for sex, you know, she like she, she, she had the camera as her way of communicating, and it, it was it certainly when she was just younger, and 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 the fact that all like lots of these people that she took pictures of are so vibrant and young, but then we know that a lot of them just didn't live past the eighties because a lot of them were lost during the AIDS crisis as well, just makes it equally more powerful. And then to 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 know that now Nan Gold is, is spending her golden years when she was like you know she, she's like she's, she's made lots of money from her, her work she could sit back and relax but she's going out tirelessly working to stop another e epidemic you know the, the one that almost took her life it's taken people's life right now it's, yeah, it's just incredibly moving like I found myself just bursting into tears watching this um, not just the, the archive stuff which was just just beautiful but also the the, the, the kind of modern day stuff where, where, which is much more straightforward but it's just like so well done um, Laura Poitras has clearly spent a lot of time with Anne Gold, and you know she built up a lot of trust with her. And yeah, it, it, yeah, you're right, Lewis. Like you could imagine a million other films like that were maybe more. You could actually argue more rigorous and maybe look more in depth and got like lots of experts to explain more about OxyContin. It, I wouldn't say if you if you don't know anything about it, you're not going to get that here. It's much more of a personal film it's like and that's why it's powerful it's, it's like, you know, like you say the, the, the personal is the political and it's how nine golden's life is now about sort of bringing justice to these people and i think it's also a really interesting interrogation of when does art become quote unquote activism and i think very often because art is political we very often think that therefore that is the end of it but like art is political in a way that everything is political but it's not in itself kind of that's not the end point. And I think what Nan Golden does in that she's like working, yeah, with making these incredible works of art that like you say, I hadn't really heard of her properly either, but like, you know, David Von Rovich and all the stuff that I'd read around him, obviously all of that is so like so connected to her as well. So she's someone that's been on the peripheries of stuff that I've been really interested in. Um, and she has this kind of amazing back catalog of all of this, but then she's actually just going out and doing the work. Like she's in, what must be like pretty boring meetings and you know with other activists and going up and showing and being annoying and that's what does like that's what makes a difference and I thought kind of showing how you can take the political nature of art and actually bring it into like real world action was a really powerful statement to make it's not just the work of a political artist it's the work of a political artist who then kind of put their money where their no yeah put yeah. their money where their mouth is is that the expression yeah i mean anyway, potentially she could look you know in, an, in another situation that they, they could have she could have been an outcast from the art mm -hmm. community she could have been her art could have been taken down from the walls instead of but it, it works the other way the sackcloth's name is taken down so yeah. that's so yeah it's like a an amazing story yeah because one of the things that it does it tackles the thing of like, yeah, when does art become activism, but also when do things become institutionalized? Mm. And like, like you said, right back at the start of the conversation, you hear the name Sackler enough, you assume it's been around forever. One of the things that they bring up a lot in this film is that Nan Golden has been around for so long that she's in a lot of the galleries in their collections that she's then going and protesting. So then she's able to use the fact that they've turned her into a kind of institutional yeah, mark yeah, yeah. and say like, all right, well, if you think I'm that much of a big deal, watch me chuck a bunch of stuff off the balcony of the Guggenheim. It's basically, it's effectively two films playing simultaneously, but that like interlock with each other really effectively. Yeah, it's just a great, great film. Lovely stuff. Sacklers can get it up them as far as I'm concerned. Bad people. <laughs> No fans here at the Cine Skinny. Um, Controversial. I know. <laughs> what if I told you that I didn't like them? Um, so All the Beauty in the Bloodshed is out on the 27th of January, but GFT have a preview screening on the 25th with a Laura Poitras Q&A. Like live. Apparently like, so, yeah. Yeah, which is very cool. Yeah. Also, I'm just seeing the films in 18. That is ridiculous, I guess. I think that it might be... I, I think I read this somewhere that if ever a film shows 
depictions of sexual violence, it's immediately an 18. Right. Which is why um, Last Night in Soho was an 18, even though it's actually not that violent. I, but I might be wrong about this. Is not also there's a rule about erect penises? Yes, yeah, yeah. Which and there some are of her, in this yeah, film. Yeah, in yeah. Because of her, like, yeah. archival footage. So I think it's that rather than anything else. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, Son... But if you're 17... Fake an ID. Yeah, sneak in. If you're any age, sneak in and see it. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> you deserve it. So yeah, it's out on the 27th of January. Preview screen at the GFT on the 25th. Go and see it. It's very, very good. Right, next up is Tar. Kate Blanchett is a musical virtuoso, but she hasn't been conducting herself very well. She's trying to keep a lid yeah, on her terrible behaviour whilst orchestrating a series of major events in her personal and professional life. But the question, Anahi, is can she keep batting away scrutiny from people inside and outside the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra? I need to make it very clear that none of us <laughs> signed up on I this. would like to point out we have a shared Google Doc with all of our notes, so I got to watch as those words appeared, <laughs> and I was helpless against it. And you saw them getting bolded as well, to remind me where to put the emphasis. So this is Tar, which is a new film from Todd Field. It is as that very uh, accurate and detailed description just uh, <laughs> laid out. It's a film about Kate Blanchett as a kind of virtuoso orchestra conductor who has uh, been up to no good in a variety of different ways. And it's all about how she is uh, basically a kind of big beast of the classical music world, but that might be true in more senses of the word than just the one. Jamie. It just keeps coming to you. I know, I can't help it. I'm just channeling. This. I'm not sure who I'm channeling, but it cannot be stopped. Alan Patrick. <laughs> I'll take it. Jamie, what did you think? I know that you were a fan of Todd Field's other work, so what did you think of Tar? Yeah, I was a, I was a fan of Todd Field, but I, I liked it well enough, but I, I actually didn't think he had a film like this in him. I thought this is fantastic. It's uh, just a, yeah, a really original, enthralling bit of work. And I think what I like most about it is how the tone keeps shifting. Like when I first sat down to watch this, I wasn't exactly sure what I was watching because it opens in such a strange way. It opens with this massive, long scene of a Q&A with uh, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. And it's like, who starts a film with a very long, dull Q&A? But you know, but but then it becomes clear why why he did that. So yeah, it's like uh, it starts off as this kind of like character study almost, but then it quickly becomes a kind of like psychological horror as these kind of weird sounds keep creeping into Lydia's day to day. She seems to, she hears like weird noises or screams in the street. Um, it's really kind of disconcerting. She sees like a dog at one point, which looks like a wolf. It's like really startling but then it's also like flecked with this kind of dark humor you know like very wry humor just satirizing this world around her because the fact is Kate Blanchett's character Lydia Targ has got to this position because she's surrounded by sycophants she's surrounded by enablers but she's also a monster who is the is just amazing at putting people down with a smile on her face you know like that's that's why kind of Kate Blanchett sort of seems to be relishing this role because she gets to be monstrous but in the most delicious way you know there's, there's scenes with uh, Mark Strong who's her contemporary uh, a composer who lives in New York she lives in Berlin and she clearly thinks he's a piece of shit but she, she'll have the lunches with him where she's smiling and talking about her work but every uh, sentence is designed to make belittle him with it. you know it's, it's just it's just mesmerizing to watch but you know the thing is if you you sort of seen people in this world people like Lydia Tarr that's clearly a very intelligent person, but somebody who performs her intelligence. You know, that, that opening scene in the Q&A is, is so instructive for the whole film because you see her performing her virtue. You know, she's conducting this interview. This guy is her little puppet. And I don't really know why Adam Gopnik agreed to do this because it makes him look like an absolute twerp, I think. <laughs> you know, uh, he's a real journalist. Like, he's, he's a respected writer, but then he, 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 he delivers this kind of completely over-the-top intro to her like she's descri describing all her achievements and she's just sitting there like nodding her head yeah and this amazing tailored suit and then she just pulls the strings because she knows every question that's coming he, he puts all these little softballs to her and she's just basically bloviating about how great she is what i love is i've seen cunies like that you know i've been if you go to any festival any kind of like visual art sort of speech you know you see people like this all the time so it's like it's just perfectly describing this um milieu and I think what people have bristled at is because it's basically also a Me Too movie. You know, it's a, it's a, a Me Too movie with a queer woman at its centre. And some people, you know, argue, well, why, why is that? You know, like, it seems like kind of a weird choice because we know 
queer women aren't the problem. But I think it's actually a really smart choice because I think if you had, you know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis or, um, you know, any kind of major actor in that role, it would have been a, a less interesting movie because you know exactly how it's going to play. You know men are trash. But because you put this really interesting, powerful woman, really talented, you know, there's no there's no denying she's talented. This is a, It's not a, a film that's saying that she got power because she's untalented. We, we know she's great. She's a genius. So it's really thorny to watch it unfold that actually she is a monster, you know, and, and, it, and it, you have to work a bit harder. You have to kind of question your own moral compass you know you have to question everything she's doing sometimes I think some scenes are very ambiguous of how you're meant to feel about it there's a scene where she takes apart um a student uh, this kind of BIPOC student who um it basically says back is useless you know I, I don't care about this old white man um and she sort of rips him apart and and part of part of the film makes you think oh, I'm meant to agree with her here because his his argument was pretty poor but at the same time she's such a bully mm. and the, the film is sort of makes you think all the time and and, and every scene uh, you know it's she's never she's a monster but she's never she's some something's got a point as well and i i've always thought that was interesting um and, and i think blanchett plays it brilliantly because i think she's an actor who i, I really think she's a great actor but she never kind of get, gets lost in the role it always feels like she's um performing in a way and i'm not saying that about i think she's she's one of our great actors but I think that's perfect for this role because Lydia Tarr is always performing and that becomes especially clear throughout. She's performing greatness, she's performing intelligence, she's performing this role of being a conductor and that is an interesting premise for a movie, I think. I think there are like two scenes in this film that provide like a cipher for how you're meant to read it and I think one of them is that scene with the student and then the other scene is with a little girl who's been bullying her daughter and she goes up to her and she's like, like, basically, I'll fuck you up. And who do you think they'll believe? She also says God is watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like, oh, that's who you are. And it is really interesting what you were saying, because I think when you first watch the film, certain people, the way that they react to it is like, yeah, girl boss, go. <laughs> you know, which is wild. And I actually, so I watched this in Venice and I didn't love the experience of watching it. Because especially that scene that you were talking about where she fully tears this guy apart, but like in this horrible way, like making fun of like pronouns and like non-binary, blah, 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 blah. And everyone around me, like these fucking like film critics in like middle age were just like laughing and cheering. And it like really put like a bad taste in my mouth of how I thought the film itself was operating. And the thing is, what the film does that is really interesting is it kind of sets this up and it's playing with like the conventions of cinema that you are meant to kind of buy into what this charismatic lead is saying. And then it's that's kind of tipped as the film goes on that you're like, oh no, like I'm being made complicit in her like complete fuckery. And I think that is like one of the really interesting things that it's done. And I've not seen Todd Field's other stuff, but like I... From what I've read of like little children, it is quite. He's not afraid to kind of show people that are like deeply quote unquote monstrous, and like place you in a position where you're like alongside them. I think, and I that that's like really interesting. I think she's so good at like sucking you into mm. this world, and particularly how you know the first scene is this really meticulously constructed presentation of herself. It sort of you know. She, she twists this lie that classical music and other quote-unquote highbrow art um, disciplines place you beyond moral judgment. It's like quite bulletproof, really. She's so well-spoken, especially compared to everyone she comes up against. But it's only, you know, it speaks to her performance. But the performance of her co-stars is amazing because that their sort of shaken-up dispositions are the only thing that let you know that something's kind of off mm. from the get-go. You know, her wife or... Um, her assistant or whatever, uh, they yeah, they're, they're, they suggest like a disconnect with reality. They suggest there's more to it. And that's what's really impressive about this film as well is that like I kind of thought that it was mostly going to be Kate Blanchett conducting orchestras and people sitting around talking. But there's so many different types of scene. There's so many subplots going on. There's so many threads, different characters that she interacts with in different ways. Um... And it's a, an incredibly busy film. I think that some of those subplots struggle to justify its immense runtime. Um, but 
the fact that they're all so different from one another. Many of them are like, like I say, interpersonal dramas or whatever, but a lot of them are these symbolic confrontations with portentous dogs that sort of she like runs from. Um, and that's what makes it a really enjoyable experience. You're like sitting on the edge of your seat because each scene is so vastly different from the next. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of cryptic. There's like scenes that still, I'm not exactly sure what they represent. There's like dream sequences because like it turns out that Lydia Tarr, she spent some time, was it in the Amazon, some sort of mm. South American country learning indigenous music, but she gets these flashbacks to um, some sort of tragedy or something. Is, is it guilt or is it, is, I, I don't know, is, 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 a, is a film that is probably fun to unpick and go back and look at, but it's a, it, I think what is so impressive is just the technique of uh, Todd Fields. Like he, he it's kind of quite virtuosic. He, 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 the film is like a, is a bit like a orchestral piece. It's, it goes up and down. It's got like scenes that, like I say, that opening scene is like must be ten minutes. Other scenes are very quick, very brief. Um, so it's got these kind of set pieces which are just dazzling. Um, I agree. The performances are great. I think Nina Hoss is is really good. Um, mm. Like she's kind of like uh, the one person who maybe has Tars sort of knows her number you know like she, she's her wife but the, but she's also uh, the lead conductor and there's a suggestion that maybe or the lead cellist uh, uh, sorry so lead, 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 lead violinist first violin yes. um a first violinist and there's a suggestion that maybe Lydia Tass is just her you know she's working her way through she, you know she uses her power to get women basically and there's a great scene where she's basically flirting with her next conquest this new this new cello player and Nina Hoss is this cuckold wife is watching on and the side eye she gives her just makes me want to see these two women in more films together you know i want them put them in a kind of bergman like <laughs> thriller i want to see it like i want to see them go at each other you know um yeah uh, uh, yeah i, I really I really loved it yeah so that was tar it's out now it's quite long but it is as we've said just now very good mm-hmm. so yeah it's in cinemas now you can check it out kate blanchett terrifying shite bag lovely stuff Hey folks, are you ready to talk about artificial intelligence in cinema? It's a hot topic, and for good reason. AI in films can make for some pretty exciting, thought-provoking, and sometimes even hilarious viewing. From robots taking over the world to AI assistants falling in love, it's a genre that never gets old. So whether you're a sci-fi fan or just love a good story, let's dive into the world of AI in cinema and explore what makes these films so captivating. Who knows? We might even learn a thing or two about our robot overlords. Or not. (laughs) The or not at the end. You never never thought you'd see... So it may surprise you, listener, (laughs) to hear that that was written by the uh, ChatGPT AI uh, program. I asked it to write a a introduction to a discussion about artificial intelligence in cinema and to keep a light tone. And (laughs) you know what? (laughs) It's missed some places, but you can't deny it. <laughs> Hold on, Peter. Are, you, are you basically doing yourself a job? Are you saying yeah. we, could, we could just replace you with this AI generator? Soon, the entire cine skinny will be written by AI. That AI generator could not have written that tar intro. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Only Peter I mean, could do that. The thing is, I tried to make the AI write puns and it didn't really understand <laughs> the concept. So... The reason for that um, is we want to talk a bit about artificial intelligence in cinema, how it's kind of portrayed uh, and some examples of it being used. And kind of, I think one of the interesting things about AI is because it is brand new, you often see art talking about artificial intelligence, which then ends up like actively influencing the future direction of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. CF, all those lads talking about reading Isaac Asimov books and then designing robots. So... Uh, we want to talk about this uh, because of Megan, the new Bloomhouse horror, which I will heretofore be calling by its proper name, M. Thregan. Uh, <laughs> the film about an AI doll designed to protect a kid, but go with me on this. It soon starts to go outside of its directives and go a bit hog wild. Uh, Jamie, you saw M. Thregan. Do you want to give us a very brief, like, potted 90 seconds on what it is so we can start talking about AI and robots and things of this nature. Meg Thregan is exactly the film you think it is. It plays out for beat for beat what you would expect a killer robot movie to do. You know, every you can tell exactly who she's going to kill. As soon as that annoying kid appears on screen, you know he's going to die. As soon as that 
annoying neighbour complains about like Megan, you know she's in for it. So it's like, so it's that kind of film where you know exactly what's going to happen, but it's really well made. It's it's got something to say about less about AI and more about kind of maybe parent helicopter uh, helicopter parenting, you know, because it's about because <laughs> Megan basically just takes her directive too far. She protects this girl to the nth degree, um, so much so that the girl becomes coddled, and it's about like you know, it's you know it's saying something about like uh, there's a kind of <laughs> Fun bar, like proto Megan is this kind of Furby character, um, which the kid had, and this is Megan's the replacement, like in a new version of it. So it's, so it's saying something about like letting iPads and like toys and video games like be your kids' parents, basically, um, if that makes sense. But yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. It's when you say it's exactly what you think, you mean the robot comes in, it seems like it's fine, the robot starts to move away from what it's supposed to do. And then the humans have to stop the robot before it kills again. Well, put it this way: in the f- in maybe one of the early scenes, we see an old robot that um, the inventor made when she was at university. Now, do you think that old robot might come in handy later on in the film when she has to fight this other advanced killer robot? Yes, it does. <laughs> you know, is that going to film? Like, yeah, I knew exactly. It's, it's no surprises, but you know, it did it did what it, it expected to do, which is you know sometimes all you can ask for. So I suppose when we're talking about AI, there's like a bunch of different things that are all tied up in that because like there's different obviously like kinds of AI and you can kind of have more reactive stuff where you just put some information in and it does something out. You can have AI that can kind of like remember things and react to what you've done and then sense what you're thinking and then be like, okay, I have a sense that you want me to do this, so I'm going to do this. But one of the films that you want to talk about, Jamie, is maybe like a useful place to start, which is... uh, which is Disney Pixar's classic, Wally. Well, I want to talk about Wally because I think there's always something really arrogant about all these AI films that suggest our robot overlords will be evil. You know, it, it's always implied that we, the humans, have a soul and we are good and we are moral. And if we create this artificial robot life, it will be soulless and immoral and it will try to destroy us. Uh, and that obviously flies in the face of all available evidence to the contrary because, you know, if anything's going to destroy humankind, it's going to be humankind. I would much rather be led by a robot than a Tory, for example. <laughs> you know, they're logical. You know, they will not do crazy things like Brexit or destroy the NHS, for example. A robot would never do that. So I'm I'm pro robot, and I think a really good pro robot film is Wally because it's about a lovely little robot. <laughs> Sorry, that's so funny. <laughs> what? I would vote for like a robot. You're right. right I'm right. not arguing with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Put a robot, I mean, Captain Binface, he's like basically a robot. I'd vote for him over Rishi Sunak, put it that way. You know that Captain Binface is a guy with a bin on his head, right? (laughs) Man, this robot's really advanced. (laughs) Don't know why they only gave him a metal head and human arms. Well, I've never made an AI Captain Binface, I would vote for it. Um, But anyway, so back to Wally, which which I think is... Genuinely one of the great films of the 21st century. It's, it's really good and, and definitely my favourite Pixar. But yeah, it's, it's about this kind of little robot that's been left behind on Earth because mankind has trashed it and it's this little robot that's just picking through the detritus of humankind, trying to tidy up the Earth, basically. But over the, the decades it's been left alone, it sort of picks up a bit, a few quirks, you know, and it, it learns a little bit about humanity, but it, it sort of learns the good stuff. It throws away, you know, there's a lovely scene where it kind of just throws away a, a ring and finds like a box and it, it finds the joy in sort of objects and sort of, it finds an old battered tape of a old cheesy musical and it, it, it sort of learns about love. And it's like, it's a really lovely story, So, but, but it's like quite dark. It's like the first half hour is just this poor robot on its own, but then it finds another robot and it falls in love. And it, you know, through machinations it travels to space and finds that humankind have become these kind of slug-like creatures who just sit about all day watching tv and drinking milkshakes and you know doing nothing um and this little robot you know sacrifices itself and sort of shows mankind that there's a better way and it's 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 really lovely and i think actually it's probably a more realistic if we did have an ai i mean if we programmed it well and it didn't have any interference from humankind of course it would sort of be better than us I would hope so because we are terrible let's face it humans are bad um, and yeah if we if a, if a robot was programmed to think I think it would probably do a better job than us personally there's only one problem I have with that which is who's programming the AI 
Well, Who's no. giving it all the information well, to well, work for? Well, that's the thing about an AI. You don't program it. You just, you just start the thing and it learns for itself. Is that not the whole point of AI? It, 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 the AI has its own consciousness, so it can, it can make it its own decisions. You're kind of, yes, sort of. Because like an, an artificial, so a self-aware artificial intelligence would be able to uh, yeah, make its own decision, come at things from a zero star. However, all of these systems are based on the kind of conventions and the rules and the kind of social mores of the day. That's where they get all the information that they're trained on. Because the way that something like ChatGPT that we used at the start works is they put in a bunch of text and a bunch of newspaper articles and books and things like that and get the AI to try and work out how all these things connect together. So when you ask it to do something, it can just remember from some of the things that it's had in its big database and try and put it together as best as it can. And I think a film that maybe talks about this a tiny little bit, or it's maybe an, a useful place to go next, is something that Lewis wanted to bring up, because you talk about a film that uh, is from a slightly different time, mm -hmm. shall we say, and maybe the... Uh, Maybe the social mores of the day were slightly different well, back when this film came out. Might be an interesting thing to think about when talking about sending a robot off with a bunch of information and leaving <laughs> it to crack on with it. I would. People are on the edge of their seats. Are. I would like to say I am kind of in Jamie's corner for this one. I like Wally as a film, and I do like the exploration as of of AI as not a purely antagonistic thing. And I was so close to bringing Moon today, which is a good film about an AI with a with a more interesting sense of morality, except it's portrayed by Kevin Spacey. Um, and I didn't want to talk about Kevin Spacey all day. Uh, Fair. So instead... Am I misremembering Moon? It's Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey's the robot in Moon. Oh, the robot, sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's the AI. Oh, yeah. Poor Duncan Jones. There's only good film and Kevin Spacey's in it. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no real way... I know we kind of avoid spoilers on this. There's no real way to bring this film up without spoiling it. It's 50 years old and, you know, it's still fun to watch him when you know what's coming. It's The Stepford Wives. For people who have not seen it, Catherine Ross is a streetwise New Yorker with aspirations to be a photographer, but winds up moving with her husband and kids to an idealistic sunny suburb called Stepford. She makes friends with another newcomer played by Paul Apprentice, but they sort of feel a bit out of place when they realise that all of the, the women in Stepford are mysteriously subservient to their husbands. And like I say, I cannot really connect this film to our theme without spoiling it again. Sorry. Seven, like it's from 1975 turns out they're all androids so um this film didn't particularly do big numbers and i think that it got kind of a lukewarm reception only enough to maybe get like a small cult following and then a remake in 2004 which people didn't like um but what was interesting to me was that i learned that uh, like feminist critics at the time did not like it among them was betty frieden um and i was a little bit confused because it does villainize patriarchal men, and though it's not the most feminist thing in the world to have all your female characters be victims in a horror movie, it's still like a horror film that speaks to the horror of the objectification of female bodies. And the sort of eerie, uncanny suburban setting was a huge inspiration on Jordan Peele for Get Out. Um, not to mention, uh, Catherine Ross and Paul Apprentice are like great heroes. They like drink scotch and they talk about sex and you know they're unconcerned with the opinions of men and they like get to the bottom of this mystery it's kind of like sex in the city meets invasion of the body snatchers um but it was you know the film was written by a man it was directed by a man it was based on a book that was written by a man so it's not really a case of when it's not really a case of if the the, the feminism fails at any point it's when it will and yeah, I think what people didn't like it about the time is that the characters can be a little pointlessly persecutory. They get to Stepford and they're like, oh my god, all the women here like clean their kitchen. They're clearly enslaved by their husbands. And feminists at the time didn't really think it was particularly feminist to bash on women for, you know, being... Like, domesticity did not equal subservience. Which is why, you know, it shows this film would not work without AI. Because the important thing is the women are robbed of their choice. That's what makes it a horror. So all these like tech companies around Stepford and the leaders of the men association who worked for Disneyland in some capacity, suggested to be animatronics, could use these novel developments to fulfill the male power fantasy. It's what makes this film quite of its time, but also kind of interesting. So when it comes to discussing AI, like you have to be very conscious to how powerful your AI is, but also like 
where exactly the intent, the development is coming from. If you told me that um, there's this great AI that you can like install in your home and it'll do all your tasks for you, but it was made by like Amazon or Tesla, I would be like, not in a million years, because it's impossible to separate the intent, the, the flaws of the sort of very pro-capitalist, almost like neo-colonialist developers from the product they're making. But we do do that, right? Like Google Home and like... I don't. No, Get no, that no, shit either. out of my home. Yeah, like I fully agree with yeah. you, but it is wild just how much people have like integrated that within like Alexa and like all of this shit. Like it is like everywhere. It's, it's why AI, you know, could be exciting, but it's not exciting to me because who's going to develop an AI mm. for the good of humanity when, you know, the people developing space travel and new transport solutions are all psycho billionaires who are just doing it for the memes and just because they want to be adored and they actually make really poor products. And it kind of loops back round to Wally, which I also agree with Jamie. Great film, Wally Legend. But <laughs> the thing about the Wally character and the intelligence within it is that it was only really developed as a last gasp after all of the horrible capitalist machinations of the by and large corporation had failed to the point where they had destroyed the planet and they were like well i suppose you can always try being nice it's worth a crack anyway we're off into space i think it's really interesting particularly when you look at cinema which is a very kind of industrial process a lot of the time to think of like well, why do certain films get made? It's because you put certain inputs into a system like the film industry and then you say, okay, the film industry says we want this back out. Mm. I'm looking at Marvel and wagging yeah. my uh, unheard, unseen because we're on audio finger. <laughs> but it's also what, because um, I know you're going to, you are going to talk about it's you that talks about the Matrix? Yes. Yes. So, like, that's what the kind of most recent Matrix did, right? In that it was, like, satirizing that system and that it was, like, a meta take on them making the sequel. Yeah. That idea of, like, the expectations of the industry in producing art. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I think that the Matrix, obviously, is a very, very dense film. So I only really want to talk about one aspect of it. Because um, it's all kind of like brain in a vat, are you who you think you are, what does it mean to be you, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think one of the things that The Matrix really deals with very effectively is this idea of when you create a kind of artificial intelligence, particularly a kind of self-aware one, what responsibilities do you have to it? Mm. And when that then creates other ones like it, what responsibilities does it have? One of the interesting things that The Matrix does is it sets out this kind of lineage and this kind of like passed on hereditary problem that you have with this kind of tool, this kind of like AI uh, robot, whatever you want to call it, is that machines created the programs which created the matrix, but people created the machines. So obviously there were a bunch of things that were fed in, prejudices, rules, ideas, all fed into that, and that ended up in the matrix. The programs then created other programs to go around and do what they wanted to do. And the really interesting thing about The Matrix is that the agents, like Hugo Weaver and his mob, they hate it. They, they're like, this is horrible. I don't want to be here any more than the rest of you want to be here. But I'm just off around having to do all this horse shit, and I'm not happy about it. Um, I think that, yeah, like, really, we need to do, like, a whole episode on The Matrix, really, to do it justice. Yes. There's so much in it. But I think it's really interesting in terms of thinking about how different intelligences interact with each other, whether they're like man-made, made in a big jar. Um, other, other ways of building intelligences are available. A lot of AI stuff is interested in like what makes people human and all this kind of stuff. But I think, Anahit, you want to talk about something slightly. Yes. So I completely agree with what all of you guys have been saying. I think that is the thing with like AI cinema, right? Is it's interested in the anxieties of being able to create human subjectivity and I think really the idea of AI currently is that you can't but maybe you can that's what the Turing test was about right like what if a computer could get to a point where you couldn't tell it apart from a human brain does that make it human it's what Westworld was also about like there's this long like history of it and I think it's really like an anxiety about like humans becoming decentered from the universe like that's where the cinematic horror of it lies um, but I completely agree with Jamie that, like, really the horror of AI and the realities of AI are kind of the dehumanization it creates in humans. 
like the possibilities of techno-capitalism, surveillance, all of that stuff. It's why the Matrix is like such a good example of this. But for me, being me, obviously, the things that I find really interesting are the films that kind of navigate how the construction of something that can so easily mimic human behavior changes our conceptualizations of intimacy, um, which is so often thought of as a behavior that involves two human beings. So it's kind of like a softer, less dystopian take, I think, on the AI, but still something that's kind of interrogating and kind of trying to like break apart these like human behaviors and what part of it is like entirely just belongs to us. Um, Spike Jones is her, of course, like famously did this. I never really connected fully with that film. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, that's like a really famous example of it. Um, but Maria Schrader's I'm Your Man that came out a couple of years ago, I think is a really good example of this genre. Um, it stars Dan Stevens out of Downton Abbey fame in this German film of all things about a woman who agrees to like test run this new like soulmate robot in exchange for funding for her academic study, which is genuinely one of the best reads on the current state of academia that I've ever heard. That is the <laughs> only way that you can fucking get funding these days. And it's really- These days, these <laughs> days you have to take a robot on a date to get your funding. Like, honest to God. Um, but it's really a film about like the essence of what makes us human beyond that kind of obsession with the technological that I think a lot of AI cinema has like our impulses towards tenderness, towards vulnerability, towards desire. The idea that like intimacy is always like an encounter with the unknown, um, whether that is human, whether that is non-human and the kind of fear of that, whether there exists a perfect model of love, whether that is something that can be programmed, whether we can ever fully know ourselves in order to program what we want. Um, and it's just like such a interesting example of that that I think interrogates both the idea of artificial intelligence and the human in a way that isn't entirely taken up with, like Jamie was saying, fears that are quite unfounded. Because really, if we did have AI, that would not be the problem. Like the AI is not the issue, you know? Um, and it's just like, yeah, a really incredible, really unusual film. Um, Dan Stevens can speak German. I think he was brought up speaking German, maybe. Um, but he speaks it in like a very, very, because it obviously isn't his first language, very kind of formal way with like this slight English accent. Um, and it's just this masterstroke of casting because it kind of creates this like distance, this sense of artificiality. But at the same time, he's like such a gentle, really beautiful man. And like the way that they interact, it's just really clever. Um, I really, really liked it. I think it's way, way better than her. Like way better. What's interesting is to compare them is like, um, I guess Dan Steven is the perfect. Mm. You know, it's like uh, he has like the dreamboat. He's like he, he, he's like you know, like say soft and lovely and caring. What I love about her is I love how like the I just says this guy's boring. I'm gonna go off and yeah. date other guys, and that's so great. <laughs> like I love that. Like the, the I mean, let's face it. That's why men are trying to create robots because they want somebody to love them and not say it, say anything back. Mm. That's why people want sex robots because women won't fuck them and because they, <laughs> they, they, they tell them they're shit, I'm going to somewhere else. So so the fact that he has that and it's off shagging someone else is amazing. That's what that's... Towards the end, that's why her is amazing because, yeah, it is like, why is she with this dope? Yeah. He, he is a dope. Yeah. And then and then the, the very end of the film is like, it's, it's the kind of big reveal. It's like, I mean, it, it gets a bit cheesy towards the end because then he goes back with his ex, but, yeah. you know, the, the kind of idea that the AI, the humans create... I'm not interested in us, really. That's why we're creating this. It's why people create human uh, babies. You know, it's because they want a child to, like... Yeah, you want, them. like, a reflection back at yourself. Yeah, and then when yeah. the kid goes off and becomes its own person, that's when the tension appears, you know? So, like, it's, it's the same idea. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that kind of, that twist in her is probably the most interesting part in the film because that is then that idea of it has reached subjectivity, right? Like, it's reached something that even... Because AI is always programmed. Like, even if it's programmed to do something spontaneous, like the fucking introduction there wrote for us. Like, it is still... It is inputting... It's creating something out of things that have been inputted. Um, and so in her, the fact that that is suddenly a choice, that that is, like, her subjectivity... Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, but, yeah, I just really love... I'm your man. There's I'm like a, such an inverse, isn't there, in, in terms of how we define AI, especially in, in narratives like these, based on, you know, their 
either dependence or independence. So I, I think like the exact opposite of that, where her, we realize the AI is an AI because it makes its own choices. It seems to me like another film I was going to bring up was Alien, because that's a great film about AI that's just among us and working with us. And that one guy that you work with, who's like a little bit too obsessed with the rules, turns out to be an imposter, turns out to not be an organic being. Um, and I think it's a recurring theme throughout the uh, the alien films that like the AI are defined by their lack of independence. They can't make decisions for themselves. They are, like you say, they've had something put into them that they're then reflecting outwards. They're dependent on the corporations that build them. They're representatives. They're kind of mini fascists in that way. It <laughs> equates fascism with artificial intelligence, not freedom, mm. which is the exact opposite, but both equally credible. Yeah, there's a really interesting this is not like cinematic at all um but donna haraway who's like this kind of post-humanist scholar she very famously wrote um this piece called the cyborg manifesto and it was kind of this imagination of post-humanism that was away from that idea of melding technology with the human which is kind of what it was until that point and so which is really a continuation of the human right like you're still continuing you're centering yourself by being like how can i essentially have eternal life by like switching out parts of my body and what she does with that is she's like, the figure of the cyborg is something that makes us think what goes beyond the human. Like, what can we start thinking about that has subjectivity, that has, and there's like an ecological aspect to that, right? Like, what, how do we think of the world in a way that we aren't the only people that own ideas of subjectivity, that own ideas of intimacy? And I think a lot of AI cinema still is kind of dwelling within that kind of anxiety that came before that, you know? I would like to see more of it that's a bit more like, yeah, they have a right, like we already live in this kind of world where things have subjectivity and things have like intelligent thought beyond us. We're just not capable of like recognizing it, you mm, know? Totally. Yeah. You might see a film where a ring doorbell is put on trial for a crime <laughs> it did not commit. <laughs> That's the that seems to be what you're saying. <laughs> that is what I'm saying, yes. <laughs> before we go, uh, what's everyone looking forward to? Uh, Lewis, what are you looking forward to seeing or telling other people to go and see? Uh, well, currently out right now, I think you can see it at Cameo and GFT is Ennis Main or Ennis Men, I think. I like Google that and I think it's Ennis Main. It's a Cornish folk horror film. It's very abstract, very eerie and isolated. Um, I don't want to like reduce it by just comparing it to other films, but if you liked Midsummer, then this is also a sort of pastoral daytime horror. If you liked The Lighthouse, it is about isolation and nature. And uh, I actually brought up a film quite a while back, Robert Altman's Images from 1971, a very unusual Robert Altman film, which seems in a way to kind of act as a bit of a blueprint for this film because it, it you know, it is shot in 16 millimeters. So it has this very authentic looking 70s aesthetic, um, but it also sort of follows this, a woman who we don't know a lot about, but, you know, just the strange sort of phantoms that haunt her, let us piece together an image. Really atmospheric, um, really, like, worth going to see, and it'll sort of stick in your head, and you'll be thinking about it for a while. So, yeah, if you get the chance, go and see Ennis Main. Ennis Main is by Mark Jenkin, who directed Bait. So if you've seen that weird kind of, like, black and white expressionist fishing drama, he's back. He's back and, and as odd as ever. Uh, Jamie, what are you looking forward to? Well, not a film per se, but I'm looking forward to the film programme coming out from GFF. Um, Glasgow Film Festival is announcing its upcoming slate of films, which will happen in early March. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what's on the list. Um, uh, they've announced a couple of things already, specifically Girl, which uh, looks really good. That's going to be the opening film. But yeah, I'm looking forward to see what else is uh, in the lineup. Yeah, they also announced the Fright Fest stuff the other day, which includes the new Quentin Dupieux, uh, Smoking Causes Coughing, which is a French superhero kind of parody from the looks of it about a anti-smoking task force who go around in, in Power Rangers outfits, uh, stop telling people about the dangers of tobacco, and then they get sent on a kind of like team building weekend. This is like the vegan police. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the energy. It's, it's, <laughs> like, it's like that, but en français. Um, so yeah, GFF's programme will be out on the 25th of February, I believe. Yes. Uh, 25th of January, sorry. Yes. 25th of January. So we might have more chat about it next time, but look out for it 
when it comes out. And and he, what are you looking forward to? Um, so there are three films left in the GFT's greatest films of all time kind of season. 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I've never seen, so maybe I'll actually go. It's um, good. It's got AI in it as well. Yeah, yeah. it does. It's very relevant. Full circle. Um, Love it. And then Parasite and then Man with a Movie Camera. So those are all great. Cameo is doing, which is not technically cinema, but it is a cinema, is doing a screening of um, Hannah Lavery's Lament for Sheku bio um, on the 24th, which is next Tuesday. Um, and that is stunning. So that. And then also um, Ali Abbasi's Holy Spider is out this Friday, which is a imperfect but very, very interesting film that is very relevant right now about um like a kind of true crimey story almost of a man that went on like a serial rampage killing sex workers in Mashhad in Iran in like the early 2000s um and it's his first like Iranian kind of Farsi language film and it is interesting and I think worth watching so those cool good stuff good recommendations all thank you very much um so I think that's us uh thank you Anahit Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Just PR. And thanks, Lewis. Thank you. Uh, we will be back in two weeks' time. If you like the podcast, then tell your friends. Subscribe to the pod wherever you listen to it. Uh, you can follow us all individually on Twitter at Anaheat Ruse, Jamie Dunn Esquire, Lou underscore Rob underscore, and Peter Simpson, all one word, no vowels. You can email us on cineskinny at skinny.co.uk. You can follow us on the TikTok. No response. Really? Uh, <laughs> At the Cine Skinny, yes. I'll tell you more about that once the mics are off. Uh, And yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.